This morning it will be our final time in chapter 7. If you would with me then, as your text of Scripture I trust is now open to the seventh chapter of Revelation, read along with me as I read, beginning in verse 13. I'll read the text for you, 13 through the end, and then we'll come back and begin to make our final comments with the identity of the great multitude of the Lord. Verse 13. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, or Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God. They serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb is in the midst of the throne. He will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. As you see in our time of summary regarding this group, the identity of the great multitude, we get there quite simply. I I was smiling in my study this week that an elder from within the apocalypse gave me his outline. Sometimes when you're looking, okay, what are my two points? No, wait, you're supposed to have three points, so make sure you have three, and then a conclusion slash two poems. So you think, okay, well, sometimes that takes a little bit of digging and a little bit of work to see the the working of the text, and now here an elder gave them to me. These are the two things you've got to cover, Adam. That's it. Who are these people and where have they come from? This is the centerpiece of the text. The summary of who they are and where they have come from. And after you can imagine a heavenly awkward pause, which we will see actually another great pause coming in the text with chapter 8. Here, You can see the awkwardness in verse 14. Perhaps after a moment of John not being able to exactly understand what the elder is getting at. That is, John, as you've seen this vision, who are these people and where have they come from? Are you putting it together? Do you see it? And like all of us, we kind of... Maybe stand there, and John stand there kind of looking at the ground like, uh, this is awkward. Actually, you're the one who knows. You tell me, fill me in on exactly what I'm looking upon in this great multitude. And the elder does just that. He begins and proceeds to give the identity of the great multitude of God by quite simply this. You would imagine and guess, be able to see in the text, as the elder has given me my outline this morning, we will answer these two questions regarding the great multitude of the Lord, who they are and where are they coming from. And after it is made clear that John doesn't exactly know the response to be given, the elder proceeds in verse 14 to identify them. Look with me in verse 14. I said to him, sir, you know who they are. He said to me, John, these are they who are coming out of the great tribulation. This is straightforward, the answer of who these individuals are by way of identity. I have labored with you. This is our fourth week. In helping you, I trust, be able to put together the testimony of the apocalypse is indeed that this is none other than the church victorious. This innumerable multitude, this 144,000 of the servants of our God who have been sealed by grace and have therefore overcome the sealed judgments 
It is they, the church of Jesus Christ, who is identified in her overcoming by sharing in and experiencing the sufferings of Jesus Christ. There is a word here I hope to communicate and encourage to each of you this morning. Let us not be pleased. Let us not be a church, individual Christians, who are driven by getting out of suffering. Let us not be those who interpret the holy text of Scripture in a way that enables us to get out of suffering in some sort of theological scheme. Because the thought of suffering is too hard, too difficult. Therefore, let's hermeneutically avoid it. The word of warning that I would give to you is that if we're seeking to avoid suffering, then we may be those who are caught unprepared for suffering, having given no prior thought. Yet we have easily said, I just simply won't be here for it. I won't have to endure it. So I give no thought to it. Lo, tribulation hits. Indeed, as our text says, the greatness of it is to be experienced. So we are ill-fit, unprepared, a church in crisis. Here, the elder identifies the church of Jesus Christ as not those who avoided tribulation, but as those who have come out of the great tribulation. So it is the identity of the church of Christ bought with His blood. They share in and will experience the sufferings of Jesus Christ. I want to show you that from within the apocalypse itself, and then we will continue to move and we will then come back. But I really am burdened that again, if you see this differently in your mind, I, I, at one point there was someone who I talked with about the difference of perhaps not seeing the church go through the tribulation and a different understanding there. I encouraged them lightly that I wasn't seeking ultimately to begin to rewire someone or to challenge them and to make sure that they commit to all of my commitments. Yet if I were a pastor, I would seek to persuade, as I would in the gospel. So too would I seek to persuade in the second coming and in the day of suffering and the trial and tribulation. It's not as though I study these things and I think they don't have any consequence. So if you believe it or not, ultimately it's no different to any of us. Oh, what am I doing up here then? It has great significance for the church of Christ. I do seek to persuade. So I do so from the text of Holy Scripture. The church of Jesus Christ will share in and experience the sufferings of her Lord. It is not a church who escapes. It is a church who overcomes. Notice in chapter 1, as John is beginning to write, even to the seven churches of Asia Minor, as they are experiencing trial and tribulation, John identifies to the church of Jesus Christ in verse 9 of chapter 1, I, John, your brother, am a partner in the tribulation. I'm your partner in the kingdom, and I am your partner in the patient endurance. And all of these are because we are in Jesus. The union of the saint to the Lord 
isn't a reward with no labor. John identifies his partnership in tribulation. The seven churches in Asia Minor experiencing tribulation and he attributes it to their identity with Jesus. This speaks of our union, beloved, to Jesus Christ himself. How is it that our Lord would suffer, yet we in him will not? John doesn't understand it that way. He writes to the church about her trial and tribulation as a partner in Jesus. Look with me, if you would, in the book of Romans. Romans 8 is a tremendous partner. And the 8th chapter of the book of Romans is a tremendous partner to the book of Revelation. Helping us understand it wisely is Romans 8. If you look with me in 8 chapter, uh, or excuse me, verse 17. Look at the way that Paul speaks and be informed, beloved. And I would encourage you in the book of Revelation as you're studying it, re-read Romans 8. Verse 17, as he speaks to the church of Christ. And if children, you, I won't read the entire context. You can read it yourself beginning at verse 12 and see the entire argumentation. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And everybody celebrates, right? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. I'm an heir in Jesus. I wait the day of redemption. Do be found in Him. Clothed in His righteousness. So preach the gospel. Keep reading. Provided we suffer with Him. You mean a part of my being an heir in Him is an heir in His suffering? I thought I'm an heir in Him so I don't have to suffer. Provided we suffer with Him. For it gives way to being glorified with Him. Do you see the gospel? As I share with you, to not be a church, not to be Christians who are committed to reading the text in a particular way that avoids suffering. And what will its outcome be? It will fit and unprepared. This is exactly what Peter warns the church against. Don't be unprepared. First Peter chapter 4, verse 1. Since therefore... Christ suffered in the flesh. Again, this is the way John is saying, I'm in Jesus. And if I'm in Jesus, I will be in tribulation. So Paul, you're an heir to Jesus, provided you suffer with Him. For it is through the pathway of thorns that glory comes. So Peter writes, The same thing, beloved. Christ suffered in the flesh. Because that's a reality, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. What does that mean? If I I put on the mind of Christ, specifically in light of suffering, what does that mean? Verse 2, You live for the rest of your time in the flesh, in this human vessel, no longer for your human passions, but you make clear through your suffering. You live for the will of God. So Peter says to the church, arm yourself with this thinking. Meaning, is there any consequence to thinking this way or not? Is there a consequence to reading it, that I completely avoid it? Yes. And ought there be a consequence if we read it 
so as to learn we will not avoid it. Is there consequence? Yes. This isn't for another people at another time that has no bearing upon any of us. This is written to the church. Let me show you how Peter then finishes this comment to you this morning about arming your mind with the suffering of Christ. Verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Do not begin to think in that moment as though something strange is happening to you. Remember, you put on the mind of Christ in regards to His suffering. So don't be surprised when it comes upon you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. This is Romans 8. That by those you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. To the church this morning, arm yourselves with the sufferings of Christ. Don't be surprised, but rejoice. Paul says the same thing in Philippians. Why would I rejoice? It's a sign of destruction to your enemies and redemption for you. Don't hide. Don't read your Bible so as to hide. You remember Jesus in the Gospels to his disciples? This is, remember when he spoke of being drawn out, people handing you over, turning you over, and it will happen. Do you remember he said to them, it is your opportunity. So the New Testament writers pick up exactly there. Rejoice. Paul, even to the church at Philippi, he says, count it grace that you've been granted to suffer for his sake. You mean this is a privilege? You mean I've been counted worthy in my suffering? I thought my worthiness was by proof of how I won't suffer. I thought I'm the, the, the apple of the Lord's eye and so as a manner to not suffer with my Savior. Paul says directly opposite. This is been granted to you from the hand of God. Peter says, don't, beloved, be surprised. Though this be a difficult teaching and a difficult thought of the suffering of the church, and I think particularly difficult for us this morning, just given the fact that here we sit, I'm asked to bow to no man. I'm asked to pray to no other God. So I read these texts as though they have no bearing upon me. Because it cuts the grain against the grain of my daily experience. This must be for a different people, a different word, in a different time. Beloved, can we for a moment consider the universal church? Because it doesn't take place in Pittsburgh to the tune of physical beheading is trial and tribulation, therefore, not experienced in the church. That is of the last century being the worst in all of church history. For persecution? 
last year, 2010, being the worst in a single year? Perhaps the universal church reads it differently and they consider the principle that I'm trying, indeed, seeking to persuade. For you to grasp, it is the principle of the Lord. It is taught in the text of Scripture that indeed we could think in human, gross, human terms. That it is the purest goal that shines the brightest. That's the language coming out of Daniel. Shining the brightest, which was what? Longest in the refiner's fire. Don't be surprised, beloved, when this fiery trial comes upon you to test you. And indeed, we have sang again and again, thy dross to consume, but thy gold to refine. Thus, count it joy that goal to refine. It is, if I could, in one last gross analogy, consider that it's the diamond. You can pick which one in your notes you would like to recall. Principle being the same. It is the diamond that indeed, right, burns brightest or has the most clarity or depth or burns with the greatest blue when you move it around. However, that has been grinded down and polished the deepest. So it is thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. The elder asks, who are these? And where have they come from? These are they, the church of Christ, who comes out of the great tribulation. I do want to draw your attention to what you're obviously, well, I would, I would guess at this point, asking in your mind. You grasp, you grasp quite clearly the role of trial and tribulation. Each of you, and knowing you, have experienced trial and tribulation, certainly. But you're looking at this text and you're saying, I don't disagree with the thought of trial and tribulation befalling the saints. I don't disagree there. Yeah, I notice within this text there is a comment of the great tribulation. Is the idea of tribulation different principally than the great tribulation that we're looking at right here in this text? I know that's your question. So if I could draw your attention to the thought of the great tribulation. Its background of this comment, the great tribulation, Tribulation. Its background, some of you may know, is found if you wish to go back there and read there. I won't go to the text. I'll give you a summary of the text. But the background text that this text here sets upon in its language and in its imagery is Daniel chapter 12. The background to the great tribulation of where John is drawing this language out and he is applying it to the church is Daniel 12. In Daniel's tribulation that he records in chapter 11 and the language is there from 30 to 39 and then on into chapter 12 is that there is this end time opponent who rises to persecute the saints because of their loyalty to God. Have you heard this? During that time, during this difficult tribulation, some of the faithful, some who are gathered among the body, will apostatize. Not only will they turn away from the church, or in Daniel's language, the saints, they will then also be those who then are gathered unto the ungodly and turn back to add also persecution to the church, or the saints. And the efforts of persecution are to turn the hearts of the loyal away from their loyalty to God. This is the attempt of the tribulation. This is 
the greatness of it. Apostasy and loyalty turning away from God. This is Daniel as he speaks. And John here in great coordination or parallel linking these texts together as John is doing by employing the same language. He sees this occurring already in the life of the church. If I could briefly summarize for you, as many of you have been here with us through the preaching of the seven letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor, and how exactly John sees Daniel's day occurring in the church. Consider with me the seven letters. Three of the churches mentioned in the seven letters are exactly as Daniel spoke. They are in danger of losing their identity as God's people. Do you remember? If I could briefly recap, Ephesus, to the church at Ephesus, Jesus came to them and said to them, Repent! And if you don't, I will remove the lampstand from, a mit, from it within your midst. I will remove it. You will lose your identity. You will lose the power of the Spirit in this place. It's gone. The church at Sardis. Jesus calls out, Wake up! You're about to die. To the church. As Daniel speaks of an end time, they will apostatize, turn from the Lord. So Christ comes as John begins to write to the church. Wake up. You're about to die. Then on into Laodicea, he writes, You're not actually rich as you boast. This is not who you actually are. You are poor, wicked, pitiable, and blind. To the two other churches, consider with me in the process of doing the same, compromising their loyalty to God with apostasy. Turning from Christ through false teaching. Do you remember? Pergamum and Thyatira giving way to the Nicolaitans and the Jezebel. You're tolerating them. They're killing you. They're within. This is how John is applying Daniel the church. The reality for the saints, whether it be those who read the apocalypse of Daniel or those right now hearing Revelation, the tribulation is the same. It consists, as we've seen through the seven letters, it consists, as we've seen through Daniel, pressures to compromise your faith. This is the tribulation. A compromise of faith. A turning of loyalty from God to whatever you want. Pressures to the saints and the church are the same. These pressures come as just as Daniel said, both from within, Pergamum and Thyatira, and from Without Smyrna, the last two churches I have left off, Smyrna and Philadelphia, suffering from without, faithful within, Christ yet doesn't say to them, so I'm going to take you out of the earth. He commits to them. even unto death. For through death, you actually come alive. 
This is the word to the church through trial and tribulation. It was, uh, if I could read just as the introduction to life together. As I spoke to you last week, a book by Dietrich Bonhoeffer about us, what we're doing kind of right now, life together. As it speaks from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, his introduction here is exactly a man who understood this promise. You recall Dietrich Bonhoeffer was martyred. One of the men who was discipled by him speaks this way. I was just going to read a sentence. I'll read the entire paragraph. A first-hand account of another man who was in prison. Bonhoeffer always seemed to me to spread an atmosphere of happiness and joy over the least incident. He, had, he was a man of profound gratitude for the mere fact that he was alive. He was one of the very few persons I have ever met for whom God was very real and was always near. On Sunday, April 8, 1945, Pastor Bonhoeffer conducted a little service of worship and spoke to us in a way that went to the heart of all of us. He found just the right words to express the spirit of our imprisonment together. Just the right thoughts and resolutions and reminding of us of what has brought us here. He had hardly ended his last prayer when the door opened and two civilians entered. They said, Prisoner Bonhoeffer, come with us. That had only one meaning for all of us. The gallows. We said our goodbyes to him. He took me aside. Do you see? And he said, This is the end. But for me, it is the beginning of life. Do you see? Don't be surprised. Have the mind of Christ in his sufferings. To the church of Smyrna, this is the end, but the beginning of your life. How so shall I then act in tribulation and distress? Faithful. This is the word of Christ to the church. This is the identity of the church by way of the elder. It is to be reminded of the words of Jesus in John 16, 33, with the shadow of the cross looming as He speaks to His men. In the world, you have tribulation. Fear not. I have overcome the world. Escape not. For Jesus has overcome the world. In summary then to our first point of the text regarding the great tribulation, if I could speak to its greatness, I would submit to you, Christ Church, that the greatness spoken of here with reference to the tribulation is not a new era unknown in human history. It speaks of the same era, yet of a distinct intensity in human history. It's not going to begin in a, in a certain year. It began at the resurrection. Yet there will be without a doubt, as you sit here, asked to bow to no man, asked to pray to no other God, there will be without a doubt, as we'll see, from trumpets to bowls, and intensification unknown in all of human history as we consider the riders that are affecting a fourth of the earth in human history, that is a word of grace and limitation, this will not be the case just 
before the culmination of human history. I would quote you this way from one theologian. The intensity of the final conflict of righteousness and evil will rise to such a pitch as to undoubtedly be seen as the great tribulation. Not a new era, unknown, rising of the conflict already present. Unlike any time in human history, just before the second coming of our Lord in that glorious day. So Paul would write to you and to me in 2 Timothy 3, 12. He agrees. Paul writes, indeed. All. You've read this, right? All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Your mom taught you that when at school you were being made fun of. It was your fighter verse of power against your naughty neighbors. Indeed, we would handle it with the severity that it demands. You will be persecuted if you live in Christ. So John says, I'm in Him and so I share in His tribulation. Paul, everybody who's in him will share in his sufferings. I add to you this word from Puritan pastor J.C. Ryle, tremendous man of the Lord, used greatly throughout church history. I think we have a couple of his books there in the back. Um, uh, I would add to you his comment here as I have kind of spoken a little bit more specifically of the uh, rise of evil and good in its climax, he comes alongside of us this morning and kind of applies immediately to our moment and our thought of persecution at this moment. He says, and add to this. So we're, we're thinking righteousness and evil and its combativeness and its overcoming and its demolish devious behavior. He says, and add to this. Those cares which you have in common with all the children of Adam. Sickness, disease and pain, the loss of property, the unkindness of friends, the daily toil of a livelihood, the fear of poverty, the many nameless causes of anxiety which every week seems to bring. And you say to me, whether it is true or not, that all of God's people come out of a great tribulation. What must we do, he says? We must deny ourselves in this age. We must take up our cross. We must reckon on the day of belief that there will be many a trial that will come our way if we should so enter the kingdom of heaven. Mark well, he says, beloved, this truth, the path to glory has always been filled with thorns. It is the experience of all those holy men who have left us as an example that we should walk in their way, the writer of Hebrews says. Consider the man Abraham, Jacob, Moses, David, Job, and Daniel. There was not one of them, beloved, who was not perfected as Christ through suffering. No, we're different. No, we're different. We're, we're, we're going to be handled differently, unlike all of redemptive history. We're not. It would steal our joy. He concludes, Beloved, remember, this earth is not our place of resting. It is a place for working. Not for sleeping as if we're of the night. But working as we are of the Lord's day. Here is the reason that so many run well for a time. 
They seem to have the love of Christ welling up within their hearts, and yet, when persecution or affliction on account of the word arises, they fall away. Do you see? On account of the word, the cost of loyalty from Daniel to John. When Christ is the issue of my faithfulness, of my cost, many fall away. For in the beginning, they had not counted the cost. They had reckoned on the reward without any labor. They had forgotten this most important point of the character of God's people. These are they who come out of great tribulation. This is the word to Christ's church this morning regarding your identity. So I call upon you, as I would seek indeed, to convince you away from thinking otherwise. If I could join with Peter, be prepared in your mind upon the sufferings of Christ, and so not be surprised. But if I could, in our last few moments, as I would conclude our time together, the second piece of their identity is not just where have they come from, but how did they get here? Or maybe we could ask, who exactly are they? In verse 14b, I conclude with you, your identity as those who will indeed have tribulation and will indeed overcome these are they who are gathered look at your identity beloved they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb you have overcome this is their identity white robes of righteousness This is perhaps, in my estimation, as I would submit to you, the most beautiful of all biblical expressions of faith. They believed. What a beautiful picture. At the vessel of faith, look at what they did. They looked away from themselves and unto the Lamb. This is their identity. He is their identity. They have looked away, beloved, not within to find a redeemer that is within. The ones who overcome are those who looked not unto themselves, but unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of their faith. And so they were washed in the Lamb's blood of life. This is their identity. Overcoming with the Lamb's blood. William Cooper penned it beautifully in the spring of 1800. There is a fountain that is filled with blood. This blood is drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners. Not those who are healthy and not need of redemption. Have an identity that is their own. Of righteousness and morality. No. Those who seek free forgiveness. Free. Outside of themselves. There is a fountain for you. It doesn't flow from you. It flows from Emmanuel. And there you can be punched. These are they. They were sinners. They recognized they were sinners. 
They transgressed God's law. They didn't love Him as they ought. The center of the Ten Commandments. Loving God with your whole heart. If you just do that, you can do everything. And they don't. And they know it. And they've confessed it. They were sinners. And they plunged beneath that flood. William continues to say, and the result was, they lost all their guilty stains. In other words, they were justified before God by the blood of Jesus. They were washed. They knew they needed it. They didn't look within, they looked away until the only one who could wash them. And they are washed just as he promises. So then he speaks of the mission of the blood. Do you remember Roman or excuse me, do you remember Revelation five? They're singing a new song of redemption. Do you remember the centerpiece of the song in Revelation 5? It was the blood that ransomed the people. That's why Jesus is exalted. Because your blood is ransoming the people from every language, tribe, and nation. All are called to the table. So he speaks of the Lord's mission. William Cooper finishes, Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power. This is God's unswerving commitment to gathering a people for his own name by exalting his son through the shedding of his blood. And that blood can never fail for anyone who wants free forgiveness. It will never lose its power until all, every single one of your elect are ransomed till all the ransomed church of God be saved, rescued by the blood of Emmanuel and they will sin no more. You notice what's absent on that day and I apologize for going a minute or two late this morning. Do you notice what's absent? One person out of perhaps billions of people Pleading their own righteousness. Pleading some other name that got them here. Wearing their own robes. None of that. Only by Jesus and His blood alone. No one is standing in his own apparel. He got his robe from the Lamb. There is no other exercise. There is no other plea. Each one's merit on that day will be the blood of the Lamb. For He alone, we've already heard, is found worthy. I'll just finish by reading the text with you to see the glory that awaits the day of heaven. Verse 15, Mark, well, beloved, that it begins with therefore. That is, if I could challenge one last time, this is a blood-bought reward. That is, without receiving the Lamb's blood as your atoning sacrifice, you will not be here. Since they made the robes white in the blood of the Lamb, since that occurred, they are gathered before the throne of God. They serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits upon the throne 
Oh, beloved, He will shelter you. He will shelter them with His presence. No more trial, no more tribulation. That's the meaning of verse 16. No hunger, no thirst, no sun or scorching heat. No more, beloved. No more trial, no more tribulation, no more age of distress. For the Lamb is in the midst of the throne, and He will shepherd you. He will guide you to springs of living water. And that which characterizes this present age every single day for some of us, tears that flow from our eyes that tell us of sin and its consequence. It will be no more. Because there is no more sin. So too goes away all the tears. Praise the Lord. Let us pray. Our God, we exalt you, honor you, give you the glory. And Lord, we would ask for endurance and patience and trial and tribulation. Lord, we would not seek the reward with no labor. Lord, we would be as you have commanded, faithful. Even more so in our times of great distress. If one here thinks they need not a brother and a sister, for times are good and living is easy, let them be moved to share life one with another. That we would not be those caught surprised in need of a brother and sister, but as those that are prepared with the mind of Christ. We love you and your blood-bought church. Hallelujah for the blood of the Lamb that washes away every guilty stain. In Christ's name, amen.